Good morning. Isn't it odd that somehow, in the midst of sorrow and grief, praise and joy can still flow from our lips? We are certainly a peculiar people, but thank the Lord for his peculiarness to us. Let's turn our attention to Exodus chapter 16. I'll just have to apologize right up front. There's just going to be a ton of scripture reading this morning, and there's just no way around it. I tried to figure out ways to shorten it up, and there's just no way around it. We're going to do a whole bunch of scripture reading. In fact, probably half of the time I'm up here, I'm going to be reading from the Bible. <laughs> Thank you, Paige. (laughs) It's good to know. Yes, it's it's funny. I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) She was excited that most of my talking will be reading the Bible and not me talking. This is okay. (laughs) Starting in Exodus chapter 16, as we look at this manna in the wilderness and how that foreshadows Jesus. So starting with verse 1 of chapter 16 in the book of Exodus. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out in this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For, or because, what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. And In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was the face of the 
wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost, on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, which is about two liters, according to the number of the persons in each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses and the people of Israel had meat and bread. So, okay, great, fantastic story about God's provision for people in the wilderness. Okay, so what's the big story? I mean, besides he feeds them, what's the big story? Well, I'm so glad you asked. The first thing we have to acknowledge is going back to verse 1. And they left the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. It had only been 45 days since they walked out of Egypt. 45 days. 46 days ago, they were slaves doing slave stuff in the slave camps in slavery in Egypt. And 45 days ago, they had the Passover. And 44 days ago, they walked out of Egypt and sometime around 37, 38 days ago, they walked through the Red Sea. And they're actually saying, you brought us out here to kill us. It's only been 45 days and you've already given up. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Wow. I know you're having trouble remembering because it's only been 45 days ago that you were slaves in slavery. But your memory is so messed up by being in the wilderness that you thought you had pots of meat and bread to the full while you were slaves. Are you kidding me? You are delusional people. You are flat out delusional. You never had pots of meat. Yes, you had times when there was some celebrations or special festivals maybe, and you had had some nice meat to eat. But it wasn't like you ate steak and potatoes with garlic bread every single day. That never happened. But yet you were acting like that's the life you lived in slavery? Are you kidding me? Grumbling like this? Are you serious? Yes, they really are. They're that serious. They're really like, no, you got to be kidding me. Thank God we would never do anything like that. Thank God we would never have this glorious, beautiful delivery out of all the stuff that was killing us. And 45 days later, we're hating God because he brought us 
someplace just to kill us. Thank God we would never do that. Then the other thing to look at here is this miraculous provision of bread. I mean, it just miraculously comes down from heaven and then quail fly into the camp. Look, I don't know about you guys. uh, I just happened to be talking about this with Amy this week. We were sitting on the back deck and a morning dove landed nearby and I looked at it. Right. And so this is going to give you just we're different. Me and my wife. I point out the morning dove. My wife goes, isn't that pretty? And my response was, oh, just one shell of number seven and I could be having a wonderful dove breast and biscuit. I've been dove hunting. And like we were intentionally creating an environment that would attract a lot of doves. And it never, ever looked like this, ever. I mean, like on our best days back in South Carolina, you know, creating an almost illegal baiting situation, it never looked this good. And then with my guys who actually, the guys I knew who actually did illegally bait and created, it never looked that good. Even when they intentionally broke the law and baited the field, it never looked this good. Just quail everywhere. And they just went out and got them. It's never been that easy for me, ever. Just go out and get them. Right there they are, covering the place. And in numbers, in numbers, when describing this scene, it was a day's walk from the edge of camp was covered in quail on the ground. Remember, these guys are better experienced and prepared physically for walking than we are today. And so when there's day, you know, when they walk for a whole day, that's maybe five, six, seven miles at worst and 10 miles at the really young guys that can hump it. So at the very least, you take the edge of camp and five miles that way is nothing but quail on the ground every square inch. And f- go to the other edge of camp and five miles that way, nothing but quail. This is crazy. Nothing like this ever happens, ever, anywhere. But that's what God did. That's his provision. Bread and meat right there in the middle of the wilderness. And this bread just miraculously comes down from heaven. It's just there. All they had to do was go out and pick it up. Sort of. We also read in Numbers that in Numbers 11, 7. It's easy to remember. 7, 11 reversed. Numbers 11, 7. They would go out, they would gather it, and then they would grind it up into flour and then make bread with it. But remember, they're in the middle of the desert. It's not like they have a flour mill anywhere nearby. I mean, it's just not, there's just nothing there. Right? I mean, it's kind of like walking on top of Castle Rock. There's just nothing there. There's no provision. You can't expect anything. It's just, it's empty. This was where they're living and it's just there and they just go and pick it up. Yeah, they got to grind it up and do some work, but still that's amazing provision. God's provision for them. Just giving it to them, just, just there. And oh, it wasn't just there once. It was there every day for 40 years, every day. 
the manna continued to fall on the ground every morning from this moment, 45 days after they left Egypt, until 40 years later when Joshua took them across the River Jordan into the land of Canaan. Then it stopped. And we read that the reason it stopped was because the promised land was the land of provision. It was flowing with milk and honey. They didn't need manna, bread from heaven anymore. They had the fat of the land to live off of. And yet, as amazing as this provision of manna is, and the quail, it it's kind of overridden by the dominant presence of this grumbling. When you read this narrative, like I read these 18 verses of chapter 16 in the book of Exodus, the manna and the quail take up a small number of verses, a small number of words, and the overwhelming majority of words and verses are devoted to describing their grumbling and their unhappiness. And of course, I emphasize their delusional state. And we don't like what you're doing, God. I mean, we could really just boil this all down to, we just don't like what you're doing, God. We don't like it. And this was God's response, right? I mean, this is amazing. I mean, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but sometimes I'm reading my Bible and I'm going, oh, oh no, oh no, oh no, we ain't having this. I just try to imagine I'm God. Like if I was God, which is a thing nobody ever wants, nobody ever wants me to be God, by the way. But it's trying to, if I'm God, I'm like, oh no, we ain't having this. Mm. Oh no, Mm-mm. this ain't happening. Oh, you complaining, you complaining. Just wait, I'm going to give you something to complain about. You're going to really be complaining when I'm done with you. But that's not his response. He is so much more merciful and kind than we are. His response to their overly, I don't even have a word, pathetic, unnecessary, unjustified whining and complaining was a miraculous provision of bread and meat. What? I mean, I'm, you're crazy, God. I'm not doing that for this bunch. I'm not going to do that for this bunch, but, but you did. That's his great, great love. His kindness and mercy. He doesn't deal with them the way they deserve to be dealt with. He deals with them in a very loving way, giving them way more than what they need, which immediately raises the question, why? Why would you be so kind to a group of people that are so pathetic as this? Part of the answer goes back to his promise to Abraham. But I personally think that the promise goes back even further than that. I think it goes back to the promise in Genesis 3 where God promises that the seed and the fruit of Eve will crush the serpent's head. That God in his kindness here is keeping a promise that he made back 
to Adam and Eve when they fell. Which is encouraging for us. Because if he'll keep that promise with them here in this mess, what kind of promises will he keep to us in our mess? Okay, so this is great, but what does it really have to do with Jesus? I mean, there is absolutely nothing in this chapter that says Jesus. Well, actually there is kind of. Let's go to John chapter 6. This miraculous provision from heaven is a foreshadowing of our Savior. And this is how. In John chapter 6, verse 1. And after this, Jesus went away, meaning after he had had a conversation with the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. And a large crowd... Uh, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do, meaning Jesus knew what he would do. And Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fishes. But hey, what's that when there are so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in about 5,000 in number. Now remember, 5,000 men doesn't mean 5,000 people. It means 5,000 adult males. Add to that all the women and children. So now we're talking a lot more than just 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, verse 11. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given things, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, see, they're full. They're full. Their bellies are full. He tells his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when they saw the sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, catch this. He took five barley loaves and fed like seven, eight, maybe 9,000 people on the side of this mountain with just five barley loaves. And like these weren't, you know, these weren't like massive barley loaves, you know, like trailer size wheels. I mean, they're like, you know, size of a softball, maybe a little bigger than that. And he takes them and he miraculously turns them into bread to feed like seven, maybe eight, 9,000 people. And then he takes the two fish and turns it into meat to feed these. So they got bread and meat. All of them. And they ate their full. They were completely full. And there was still 12 baskets of bread left over. 
this is, how? How did you do this, Jesus? I mean, I can imagine some of the comments from the disciples and the apostles. How did you do that? And of course, they were focused on the miracle, not the purpose of the miracle. I don't know about you, but that sometimes happens to me. Something miraculous and amazing happens, and I'm focused on it instead of the purpose of it. But he's feeding this 5,000, and and this feeding of the 5,000 is a direct parallel between Moses and manna and quail in the wilderness. Here, it was Passover. Granted, it wasn't Passover then. It had been 45 days since Passover. This was a large crowd in the wilderness, just looking at the parallels. Near Passover, very close to Passover in the wilderness, Passover here, large crowd in the wilderness, this miraculous provision of bread and meat, and everybody eats to the full. Look, this is not a coincidence that it parallels the feeding of the the multitude and the manna and quail in Exodus and in the wilderness with Moses. And in fact... Jesus had just told the group of the Pharisees before about Moses and the law. I mean, and even the way John constructs the narrative here, right before and even afterwards, he's pointing to, he's, he's, he's drawing attention to, look, look how Jesus is like Moses, only better. Here, Jesus feeds this large multitude. He does it in the wilderness, but he does it with bread that's ready to eat in the wilderness with Moses they had to collect the manna and turn it into bread they had to work it at the very least manipulate it in some form and bake it into bread here it's already ready to eat it's just break off a couple of handfuls from the loaf and eat it's, I mean you don't have to do anything no work is necessary to eat this bread. Same thing with the provision of meat. In the exodus in the wilderness, yeah, they got to, you know, they just had to walk up and collect a handful of quail, but they still had to do the field dressing, you know, peel the meat off, cook it, do all this preparation work to be able to eat it. But here, Jesus gives them fish that's ready to eat. Just like with the bread, break off some of that fish meat and start eating. You don't need to do anything to enjoy it. You, and you can ask a fair question at this point as you're sitting there like, okay, I, I buy into your parallels between Jesus and Moses and him feeding the 5,000 and the bread and the fish and the meat and the quail and the manna and Moses. But, you know, somehow this foreshadows Jesus? Are you, are you I mean, like, really? I mean, that seems like a stretch. Well, it would be if I was relying on my own interpretive abilities. Let's jump over to verse 25 in chapter 6. I want to read 25 through 51. And when they found him on the other side, meaning Jesus, right? So he gives them this amazing provision of bread. Then that night they have the storm and he walks on water and they end up on the next, on the side of the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, miraculously. And so we pick up in verse 25 when he and the disciples are already there at Capernaum. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? I'm sorry, I just... Are you serious? He just fed you with fish and bread in the middle of the wilderness miraculously and set, let's, let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say it's been 14 hours later. 14 hours. And you ask, oh, show us a sign to prove that you're really the, the Messiah. Like, oh my gosh, are you serious? Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst, shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we all know? He does now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the father except he who is from God, he has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus himself says, I am the bread come down from heaven. I am the fulfillment of all the ideas, 
hopes and possibilities that manna in the wilderness was. I'm the bread from heaven, he says in verse 41. He says, I am the bread of life three times. Three times he says it to these people. I think he means it. I mean, you can't say that this was a Freudian slip by Jesus, that he didn't really mean that. It just kind of fell out of his tongue in a brief moment of insanity. He said it three different times. He really means this. I am the bread of heaven. I am the one who is the real bread that comes down from heaven. And the Jews, I mean, and look at the other, we got the grumbling again. Are you serious? Yesterday you loved him, right? I didn't read you this, but it says in verse 15 of chapter John 6, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountaintop by himself. They were so in love with Jesus. They wanted to make him king. In fact, they were going to take him by force. Jesus is like, no, I'm not really ready to be a king yet. No, not now. This isn't the right time. Oh, we don't care. We're going to take you by force, Jesus, and make you king. You don't know what's good for you, and you don't know what's good for us. So we're going to make you king by force. They were so in love with Jesus. They're going to make him king. And 12 hours later, you're grumbling. Like, who are you? Who do you think you are? Right? That phrase, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom we know, and his brothers and sisters? That's an ancient Palestinian way of who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Are you serious? Are you kidding me, Jesus? You, the bread of heaven? Are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? That took 12 hours. Maybe 14. From we love you to who do you think you are? I'm sorry. I just can't help hiding my indignation. I mean, I make it at least 24 before I do it. Don't you? So the Jews love him and then they grumble against him and reject him. Only, this is different from what happened in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they grumbled and rejected God. Then he gives them manna and quail. Here, Jesus gives them bread and fish. And afterwards, they grumble and reject him. There's something there in that. God rarely does the same thing the same way twice. And what do we learn from that? He let them grumble. Then he gives them this miraculous provision. And you can argue, well, if he'd have made the miraculous provision sooner, they wouldn't have grumbled. But here he makes the miraculous provision and then they grumbled. So you just can't win with this bunch. Now, this bread is for the whole world, he says in verse 51. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? He is making his body, he, the bread of life that comes down from heaven, isn't just for this bunch sitting on the hillside by the Sea of Galilee. It's for the whole world. That means you and me too. We get to eat this bread. It's not just for them. What a glorious gift. How beautiful is it that our Father provides the bread of heaven and it's for us too? 
And then verse 44. This is just stunning to me. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. This provision of bread from heaven, the eating of this bread from heaven is directly tied to being raised up on the last day. And being raised up on the last day is the, how do I say this? The metaphysical fulfillment of eternal life. Right? Because we're all going to die. I hate to break it to you if you were living thinking something different, but we all going to die. All of us. Sooner or later, unless Jesus comes back first. And when we die, this thing that I'm living in and this thing that you living in is going in the ground unless you do something different with the dead body. And our spirit is separated from this physical body and then we ascend into the glories of heaven and see and know eternity with Christ. If he just did that, it would be enough, wouldn't it? If he just took our bodies out of this Oh my gosh, broken body. If he took our spirits and just took them out of this thing we have to live in and took them to be with him and then spend eternity in the glory of heaven with him and our spirit, that would be enough. But in his love for us, he does more than that. He promises that he will resurrect this body into something even better than it's ever been here on this earth and put our spirits back in it so that our entire personhood, heart, mind, soul, and body, live with him forever. We don't have to experience eternity as a disembodied soul, but as a completed human. And that promise is tied to eating the bread of heaven. Mm. When I start to understand what I've just tried to explain to you, it's like, yeah, baby, give me the bread. Give me the bread. But it's not exactly what you think. And what I mean is that the, the, we may be fooled into thinking this is some kind of like phenomenally tasting bread. And, and yes, he's speaking symbolically. But the challenge is, is the reality is, is that we eat this bread and we enjoy the promise of eternal life, but we don't get it all right now, right? We got to still slug around in this body, in this world. But it is a lot easier slugging through the muck of mire of this world with our Savior than it ever was before. And that leads me to the questions that I have there at the end. So what? Okay. Is Jesus your bread of life? Is he your bread of life? Do you live off of the daily provision that he gives you coming down from heaven each day? I'm not just asking. I mean, look, at the very forefront of this question is that salvific question of are you, have you eaten the bread of life for the hope and promise of eternal salvation? But it's more than just that. Are you daily eating this bread he provides from heaven? Just like in the wilderness, it comes down from heaven every morning for us. 
in our fellowship with him in the word and in prayer and in everything else we do to have real relational intimacy with Jesus. That happens every day. He makes that provision every day. But you got to pick it up off the ground and eat it. And are, are you doing it? Like I, I'll be honest, I'm not good. I'm, I'm not 100% here. Some days I jump up and the distractions of everything around me, I just jump into the day and skip the morning bread. And I pay the price. Just like when I skip breakfast and I crash really hard about 10.30 or 11. If I skip the daily bread, I usually crash about 30 minutes later, spiritually. And poor Amy's the one who has to bear the brunt. I typically get up earlier than she does, and so her first moments of awareness of the day is, oh, you didn't eat your bread, did you? Are you living daily off the provision that's coming down from heaven every day? The other one, number two, is we have the promise of eternal life with this bread. Are you living in that promise? Okay, that seems like a weird question because we can't live in eternal life really because we're still here and this is still messed up and it's partially fulfilled but not completely fulfilled but to the partiality of fulfillment that we have in eternal life with our joy in him, are you living in that promise? Are you living in that hope that on these worst of days, it's just temporary? And then what is your just your daily regular fellowship with him like? And if it is less than what you want, if your fellowship with Jesus is less than what you really want it to be, what's the barrier? There's something that's a barrier between you and Jesus if what you want is less than what you actually live. And the question is, what is your barrier? What is it? And when by his wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, he reveals to you what the barrier is, are you ready to bust through? Are you ready to bust through the barrier? I pray that you are. I've had my own barriers to bust through. Well, that's really an inaccurate way to say it. I've had my own barriers that needed busting down, and I was the glorious recipient of him busting them down so that I could walk through them. What is your barrier, and are you willing to let him break it down? Here's the other thing from my experiences with Jesus. When there was a barrier that he needed to break down, I had to let go of something for him to break the barrier. And so when you discover what the barrier is, are you willing to let it go? And then, then, oh, then comes the joy. Because there is nothing like the joy that comes with a deeper and richer fellowship and, and intimacy with our Savior. You, he breaks down that barrier. You let go of whatever it is tied to it and he busts it up and you walk through it and enjoy f deeper, richer fellowship with him. It is so 
good. Oh, it's like cheesecake good, baby. It's even better. But cheesecake is the bestest thing I have in this life to illustrate the goodness of world, of this world. I don't know. Maybe holding the grandbabies better. Enjoy the richness of our fellowship with him by believing in this bread from heaven and eating it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us this daily bread of miraculously provided from heaven and let us drink deep from your cup and eat richly to the full every day. In Jesus' name, amen.